Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. We are in the home stretch as far as this book is concerned. It's a brief uh, book. Uh, we are uh, considering four verses of the last chapter of Philippians, Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Uh, but before we uh, go there, we're, all, we're going to read uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. And this will help to, uh, in, in some ways, illuminate what Paul is saying in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. So again, we'll read uh, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10, and then we'll read our sermon passage, Philippians 4, 10 to 13. And brothers and sisters, as always, I remind you that this is the very Word of God. Please give your full attention unto it. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now turning to our sermon passage, Philippians 4, 10-13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for these gospel words. We thank you, O Lord, that you are here with us. Christ Jesus, that you give us strength. We pray, O Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would give us understanding into your Word. We pray that we would understand this passage and learn how to apply it to our lives. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your goodness to us. And that knowing these things that this passage teaches us, we would be grateful. And out of gratitude, O Lord, we pray that we would be obedient to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his best-known work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, writes that it is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of a Christian to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment contentment. And the basis for what he writes, indeed the basis for the entire book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, are Paul's words in verse 11 of our passage this morning, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
Now, believe it or not, despite how frequently the last verse of our passage has been wrenched out of context, Philippians 4, 10 to 13, all of it is a passage about contentment. There probably isn't a Christian school in America that doesn't have Philippians 4.13 posted somewhere in their gymnasium or in a locker room. But that doesn't mean that the verse means what they think it means. No matter how much we focus on this verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, all things through Him who strengthens me. No matter how much we focus on this verse, no matter how much we trust in Christ for our strength, a 100-pound pipsqueak, is not going to stand a chance against Mike Tyson in a boxing ring. But unfortunately, that's a possible application that could arise out of the typical way that this verse is interpreted in the American church today. Now, at the beginning of our passage in verse 10, Paul once again uses the word rejoice. This is the tenth and final time that Paul uses this word in this epistle. He writes in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have, you've had no opportunity. Now over the years, some have taken verse 10 out of context. They've taken it to mean that some sort of rift had occurred between Paul and the Philippian church, which resulted in the suspension of any assistance to Paul from the Philippians. And in the absence of of any context, the verse could be understood in that way. But the tone of the letter everywhere else throughout, everything that we've read up to this point, and what we'll read after uh, our passage this morning, the tone of this letter everywhere else shows that this interpretation, that interpretation that some rift has happened, and Paul is rebuking the Philippians for uh, stopping their assistance to him, that that's wrong. That's not a correct interpretation. Paul here isn't issuing some kind of passive-aggressive rebuke to the Philippians for their break in sending support. This letter, the entirety of it, has been a vehicle for Paul to express his overwhelming thanksgiving for their love and support since the very beginning of his ministry to them years before. Now, apparently, it was the case that some time had elapsed since they last were able to send support, and now they have. And Paul is simply acknowledging that fact. He's not trying to make them feel bad. When he tells them that at length they had revived their concern for him, what he means by concern is the tangible expression of their love for him through their uh, contribution of funds. It wasn't that they had stopped being concerned about Paul in, uh, in not sending uh, funds to him. It wasn't that, that the absence of contributions was a sign that they didn't care about Paul for a period. It's just that they had not been able to express their concern for him. They hadn't been able to show their concern for him. And he even shows his understanding of this in verse 10, that they were concerned for him but had no opportunity to show it. But now they have. They've given him this this expression, this concrete expression of their love for him, this gift. Now we have to think about the wider context once again. Context is, is really... Not everything, but, it, but it's huge in helping us to understand any specific passage in God's Word. And when we're taking four verses at a time or so, we've got to know what comes before it and what comes after it. And, and right before verse 10, we see Paul telling the Philippians in verse 9 to practice what they have learned and received, heard and seen in him. And now he's telling them, beginning in verse 10, that they are doing just that. 
He's encouraging them. Practice these things. You're doing these things. He wasn't telling them to practice these things because they weren't doing these things. He's providing evidence of the fact that they are practicing the things that he's told them to practice. And so he's encouraging them in that. In other words, Paul is seeking to encourage the Philippians that just because he's told them to put certain things into practice, that doesn't mean that they are not already doing them. He wants them to keep doing what they've been doing. And so verse 10 is the opposite of a rebuke. But it also shows us something about the nature of supporting missions, of supporting the work of the church. In Paul's tone in his letter, and more specifically in our passage this morning, there isn't a hint of anger at the fact that some time had elapsed since the Philippians had been able to send financial support. He's not rebuking them for this hiatus in their support to him. Now, over the, the years that I've been here as the pastor at, at Mid-Cities, there, there have been a handful, perhaps two handfuls of people who have, have come up to me at one point or another, and they've said something along the lines of, of this. And, and this, this goes all the way back to the beginning. I, I'm really sorry, but right now I'm, I'm not able to, my family, we're not able to, we're not able to tithe. We're not able to, to give offerings right now. The financial situation in our church is such. And then they'll sometimes say something, like, and you, you probably knew that. You probably knew we hadn't been given. Well, let me just say this. I don't know anything about who gives what. I don't look at the giving statements. There's, there's one person in this church who knows that, and only one. And that's the way it should be. So don't ever worry about your pastor knowing what you are giving or are not giving, because I don't have a clue, and that's the way that it ought to be. Number two, and more importantly, that's okay. The, the disposition of people in the church ought to be, the general disposition ought to be that you want to give, you want to support. If, if you believe in this ministry, you're part of this, you realize that your contributions, that, that that's what they're doing. That they, are, they are actively supporting the ministries of the church, the gospel ministry. And so the disposition ought to be that whenever, whenever possible, even if it's the widow's might, that, that you give. And that widow's might, the Lord will use it. But, but there may be times, as, as evidenced by the fact, uh, 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 the circumstances with the Philippians here, that they had to, to intermit their giving to Paul, and now they revive their giving. And, and what does Paul do? He doesn't rebuke them for stopping. He understands their desire. He knows that they wanted to help, but simply weren't able to at that time. Paul understands. He's sympathetic. He doesn't beat them down. And so if you are in a Philippian-like situation, or if you find yourself in that way at some point in the future, as quickly as you're able to return to giving, do it. God is not asking you to starve your family in order to give to this church. The Lord is good and gracious. And over the years, as I've said, when people have not been able to give, by God's grace, other people have given more. New people have come in. That's the nature of Christ's church. He provides for the ministry of the gospel. Now Paul continues to show his understanding to the Philippians' situation in verse 11, where he writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now Paul is treading a fine line here. He wants to show his gratitude for their gift 
in a sense, their widow's might that is given up for him, while at the same time discouraging them from sending him anything else, which might make their economic situation even worse. So you see what he's doing here. He, he's thankful. He, he, he has expressed his gratitude for them. It's, he understands what it cost them to send him this gift. But he's also very gently saying, it's okay. You don't need to feel this burden anymore. God is taking care of me. In reference to Paul's service among the churches in Corinth, he, he writes to the Corinthian churches in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. He says this, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And, with, and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burden, burdening you in any way. Now, it is almost certain that the brothers who came from Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9 is a reference to the Philippian church, which was the first church in Macedonia where Paul preached the gospel and where a church was established. And he describes this as he's robbed them. And what he meant by this, this is exactly what he says in our passage in Philippians 4. He understands that the Philippian church is giving sacrificially. They're giving beyond their means. They can't really afford this. But they're doing it anyway because they love what Paul is doing. They love the Lord. They're supporting the ministry that Paul is engaged in. And Paul is extremely thankful to them for the, the sacrifice. But he also wants very carefully so as to avoid hurting them. He wants them to know that they need not do that again. And so he speaks briefly about how the Lord has taught him to be content. In the specific context of this passage, Paul is speaking of contentment specifically with regard to financial standing. Now obviously we can, we can, we can extrapolate. We can, we can take what Paul is, is saying here and, and apply it to, uh, to, uh, to a wider uh, meaning, to material possessions, to our, our material standing in this life. But, but when you boil it all down, Paul is saying that no matter what his financial situation has been like, he has been content. And this is very important for us in America and, and really all of the westernized modern uh, world uh, to remember, to understand. Paul is saying that financial prosperity is not the source of contentment. In fact, he indicates in our passage that prosperity, as much as poverty, is something that he had to learn to be content in spite of. Financial prosperity didn't cause him to be content. It, abundance wasn't the source of his contentment. In whatever situation he's been in, he says in verse 11, he has learned to be content. And here's why it's so important for us to look at the context of any passage rather than looking, looking at a verse in isolation from what surrounds it. The word translated content in verse 11 means literally sufficient. And according to one commentator, it was a term popular among Greek philosophers to describe self-sufficiency and independence from external pressures. In other words, in the, in the 100 to 200 to 300 years prior to, to Paul's use of this word in the letter to the Philippians, Stoics used this word. And they used it to describe their self-sufficiency. Their ability to stand alone, to not need anything else, need no creature comforts, nothing from the world. They didn't need anything. They could stand alone. 
Now, Paul will use the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, what we read, part of what we read anyway, before our sermon passage. He writes there, but, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we can be content. As long as we have the basic necessities of life, we can be content in this life. So getting back to this, this use, Paul's use of this word for contentment, this use for uh, meaning sufficiency. The use of the word by Paul's day, as we've said, some uh, several hundred years later after the Stoics were using it, it had morphed and mutated far beyond the days when it was used by those philosophers so that it had lost its technical, philosophical jargon meaning. But even so, it was used, in a sense, to... to to talk about our own autonomy, our own ability to stand on our own. But Paul isn't using it this way. He's not using it to describe his own self-sufficiency. How do we know this? Well, if we look at verse 11 in isolation, we can't. If we just take verse 11 in isolation, we understand that the word content means sufficient, then we can think Paul is meaning here that we're to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we're to take care of ourselves, we're not to depend on anyone else or on the Lord at all. That is not what Paul is saying. How do I at least know that and and how am I able to say it with such certainty? Because of this. Verse 13 says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying... Possibly just in case he might be mistaken for espousing Stoicism in verse 11, that Christ is the source of his contentment. Christ is the source of his sufficiency. But if we rip verse 13 out of its context, verse 13 means something completely different. It means that I can can run a cross-country track event and Christ is going to strengthen me so that I can speed ahead of all those people I'm competing against. If we do that to verse 13, we can do it to verse 11. And so in that case, verse 11 might teach us that we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're never to complain about anything all on our own strength. But nothing could be further from what Paul is saying here. Paul's circumstances don't dictate to him his level of of contentment, but neither does his own willpower. Christ does. Jesus Christ is the source of Paul's contentment. It is through him, Jesus, that Paul can be content in all things. And we we skipped mostly over verse 12, so let's circle back to it. Paul says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying that the kind of contentment that he is describing is something that must be learned, that must be acquired, that it doesn't occur naturally in sinful human beings. Why? Because as verse 13 makes clear, the source of this type of contentment is Jesus Christ and him alone. Now in verses 11 and 12, Paul has said that he uh, learned how to be content in in any situation. But the words that he uses for learned in, in these two verses are two different verb, I'm sorry, two different words. The words translated learned in verse 11 is the standard Greek word for learn. 
It's used 24 times in the New Testament. The word translated learned in verse 12 is used only here in the New Testament. But it is used in other ancient Greek writings to refer to initiation rituals in mystery religions. And so it was familiar in, in that world. The three most popular English translations, the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard, they get at this difference between the two words by translating the word in verse 12 as, I have learned the secret. And that's probably a good and reliable translation. It gets to the, to the fact that this word was, was used in the mystery religions, and sort of an initiation. That's not, what, that's not what Paul means by it. It doesn't mean that God has brought him through some kind of secret initiation that's not available to other Christians. But what it does mean is that there is a, a secret to contentment. In other words, it's not naturally occurring in human beings. Paul is saying that he had to be brought through some things in order to learn this lesson of contentment. And Paul says in verse 12 that he knows how to be brought low, literally to be humbled, how to abound. Paul knows these things because he's learned them. He has learned them, as as we know, the hard way. Paul writes this in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Paul is saying in this passage that God brought them through these things, Things which caused them, Paul and the others who were with him, to despair of life itself. To make them rely on God instead of on themselves. And that is what Paul is getting at in our passage to the Philippians. He knows how to be brought low. He knows how to abound. He knows how to remain content either way because God brought him through very difficult circumstances and showed Paul that he, that God, is sufficient. And God is the only one who is sufficient in and of himself. He is the only one who can exist on his own without any aid from any creature, from anything else in all of creation. The rest of us, all creatures, are dependent ultimately on him or on the means that he has provided to sustain us. God is all-sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing. We, however... We need everything. Now the second half of verse 12 sounds similar to what we often hear in wedding vows. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The secret that Paul has learned is that Christ is with him in all these things. He is the one bringing Paul through them. And notice how he equates. He puts on the same plane, the same level, plenty and need, abundance, and want. And it's through all of these things that Paul has had to learn to be content. In other words, he has not derived his contentment from any of these things. He doesn't think of himself as better uh, when he's poor. He doesn't think of himself as better when he's uh, got a good cash flow coming in. He doesn't look at himself any differently, whether he's in one circumstance or another.
Christ is the one who is bringing Paul through all of these things. And that brings us to the final verse of our passage this morning. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you've heard me say it one way or another. Your Bibles, if you've got the New King James or the King James Version, you'll see I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, other translations, ESV, NIV, NAS, and others, they'll say I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's, it's a difference in which, uh, which manuscripts are, are being leaned upon for those translations. The New King James, the King James, uh, they, they go with, uh, with what was in the Textus Receptus, which said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Either way, you can, you can, be, you can rest assured, even if your translation has, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that the him is referring, the pronoun is referring to Christ, to the Lord. He's speaking about Christ. And so... There's no escaping it, no matter what translation you have. We've already mentioned how it is often taken out of context, this verse, to mean something quite different than what Paul originally intended. As we've said, this verse does not mean that any of us should try to get in the ring with Mike Tyson and expect to win a boxing match. We've mentioned how without verse 13, verse 11 could be taken to mean something quite different than Paul intended. And so verse 11 doesn't mean that you can be self-sufficient in any and every situation. And when you look at verses 10 to 13 as a whole, you begin to get a better understanding of what the the original intent was. And we who are students of the Bible, we ought to be originalists, to use a a phrase that's in pretty uh, regular uh, parlance today with regards to the Supreme Court. We ought to make it our our desire, our, our, our goal, to get at what the original author intended to say rather than what we want it to say. What we want it to say, or perhaps many of us, again, those, those Christian school coaches, they want it to mean that my team, my basketball team is going to beat your basketball team because we're, we can do all things. Christ is going to strengthen us more. And what does it say if competing teams have the verse as their, as their life verse? It's, it's the verse they're looking to. and Who does Christ choose to be straight. Thankfully, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't pertain to that. Without taking everything else into consideration that Paul has said to the Philippians, we might think that, that Paul is rebuking the Philippians for their hiatus in sending support to him. Paul is saying to the Philippians in these four verses that Christ has shown him once again that he, Christ, will provide for Paul's needs that Christ is all-sufficient. Again, Paul is not talking here about trivial matters. He's not saying that through Christ you can win your high school cross-country competition. He is saying, however, that through the strength of Christ you can face the worst of hardships in this life and not be completely undone. What's more, he is saying that you can even be content in these things. Now, I suppose you could take this passage And you could apply it to the Mike Tyson scenario in this way. The Lord drops you into the ring. Mike Tyson is in the opposing corner. You come out and you want to panic. You don't take Philippians 4.13 to to mean that you're going to beat Mike Tyson in this this boxing match. You can take it to mean that you don't have to, 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 to end up as a puddle on the mat in anxiety and worry. Because even if Mike Tyson drives you into the next life with that punch, that right hook... You're going to be with the Lord. 
And so you can be content in that way. I suppose that might be a way that we could apply it to a, a sporting event. Even if you're running your heart out on, on the cross-country uh, uh, route, and you're dying. You don't want to take this verse to mean that you're going to suddenly surge ahead and beat everybody else. But what you can do is take this verse and recognize that even if you lose, if you fall down flat on the ground, that Christ Jesus is going to get you through that very embarrassing moment when everybody else passes you up and you cross the finish line last. You could take it that way. That would be a, perhaps a, you know, a humorous way to apply it, but, but a more appropriate way to apply the verse. You can face the worst hardships in this life and not be completely, completely undone. That's what Paul is saying. The hardest things imaginable. And so these things that we've mentioned, they're somewhat hum humorous, but they're, they're even ultimately trivial. You can face the worst things that you can imagine. Your greatest fear. The loss of a loved one. Seeing, seeing your child deathly ill. Having your good name completely disparaged. Suffering some kind of terrible and traumatic event which haunts you for the rest of your life. Paul is saying not to trivialize those things, not to make them less than what they are, but he is saying that you don't have to succumb to those things and be a victim to them for the rest of your life. You can be content. Contentment isn't simply a stoic mentality where you disassociate yourself from your present circumstances. That's not what contentment is. The contentment of which Paul speaks, which enables him to do all things, is based upon this. It's based upon a, an acute knowledge and robust understanding of all of the things that Christ Jesus has done for him. If you want to be content, that you, then you need to be a student of what Jesus Christ did, both in his life and through his death and resurrection. If you want to understand how you could face imprisonment like Reverend Brunson has faced for almost two years now and not go insane over these false charges that have been leveled against him. If you were in the same situation, you would need to be a student of all of the mercies that the Lord has shown to you. Paul understood that as bad as things might have been in a particular situation, whether it was a shipwreck or an illness or imprisonment, that even in those situations, Paul wasn't giving him what he deserved. In other words, Paul wasn't, pun Paul wasn't being punished by the Lord in his shipwrecks and in his imprisonments, in his illnesses. Paul understood that hell is far worse than those things. And that though he deserved to spend eternity in hell because of his sins, by God's grace, Paul had been spared. That gives you a sense of perspective. As bad as it may be, and this is not intended to mim minimize your suffering, your pain, as bad as it may be for you in this life right now, it's not as bad as hell for eternity. It's simply not. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from that ultimate outcome. You've been delivered. 
That doesn't mean that everything else is just gravy. Everything else is icing on the cake. But it does put it into perspective. That this too shall pass. When hardship and sorrow and suffering afflict us, we are tempted to believe that God is punishing us for something that we have done. That's exactly what Job's three friends were trying to tell him, were trying to convince him of in the book of Job. To put it bluntly, we're tempted to believe that God has broken his covenant of grace with us when we're suffering and we think it's punishment. But what can actually give us comfort in our trials and sufferings is precisely the opposite way of thinking. The covenant that God has made with me is unbreakable. And because of this, all of the punishment that I deserve to suffer was endured by Jesus Christ. This, this affliction, it's not punishment. This illness, this disease, this loss of a loved one, it is not punishment for anything that I have done. Why? Because I am in Christ Jesus and He suffered my punishment for me. And so if my present sufferings are not punishment for my sins, then God must mean them for my good. He must intend for me to learn something from them. To to reference the book of Job again, we, we saw this again and again in our time in the book of Job. Righteous people do suffer. There are times in your life, perhaps many, where you will suffer something and you haven't done anything to deserve it. Now, now we're not talking about consequences for wrongdoing. If, if, you, if you get in your automobile after you have consumed five, ten drinks, and you drive home in your vehicle and you get pulled over by the local authorities and they give you a breathalyzer and you fail it and, and you suffer all of the consequences for, for that, you've deserved that. Right? That, that's something you deserve. And that's actually a pretty heinous uh, thing to do. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's not what we're talking about. The present sufferings that aren't coming as a consequence for misbehavior, for wrong behavior, in a, in a civil sense, they're not punishment for my sins. Sometimes in this life, yes, we do suffer consequences of bad decisions. That's not what Paul is talking about. If you are a believer, you can rest in the knowledge that any suffering you face in this life, whether it is a consequence of a bad decision or not, it is not a foretaste of eternal punishment for your sins. It's not what it is. If you know that God loves you, if you understand that He sent His Son to die in your place for your sins, then you are on the path to learning how to be content in all things. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then there is nothing in this life or in the next that can undo you. Nothing that can destroy you. Because the one who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell has set his everlasting love upon you. He will never destroy you. He will never leave or forsake you. And this God, he sent his son to live for you And to die for you. And that means that in all things, whether in plenty or in hunger, whether in abundance or in need, by the power of Jesus Christ, you are able to be content. 
And brothers and sisters, that is good news. That's what we need to hear. That is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ that he is giving to you. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are sufficient. You're sufficient in and of yourself. You need nothing in order to exist. You are utterly, completely of yourself. You don't need us. You don't need anything. Lord, you have created us to be dependent upon you. And Lord, we do have needs. And we thank you, O Father, that you have supplied our greatest needs. You've given us, O Lord, what we most deeply and profoundly need in this life. Lord, we're thankful for material comforts. We're, we're thankful for the relative ease and prosperity that we have in this land and in this day and age. We know, Lord, that the world has never seen before prosperity of the likes that we enjoy today. And yet, O oh Lord, we recognize that that prosperity, it has the effect of making us think that we're okay. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be content despite our prosperity. But also, O oh Lord, despite our great need. In plenty and in want, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to trust in Christ Jesus and to recognize that he has given us everything that he promised to give us. And that the as yet un, unfulfilled promises will be fulfilled in due time. We thank you that he has given us everything that we need to be sustained in this life. And what's more, O oh Lord, he has spared us from what we deserve. Eternal punishment in hell. We thank you, O oh Lord, that he endured hell. He endured your wrath for our sake. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would remember this every time we're tempted to doubt his goodness, every time we're tempted to think that some circumstance in our life, even if it's very serious, we're tempted to believe that that's some kind of punishment. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, be, to remember that Jesus Christ suffered our punishment. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us through our trials, that you would bring us through our sufferings, our sorrows. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed teach us and that we would learn. We ask, O oh Lord, that by your grace, by your spirit, we would learn to be content in all things through him who strengthens us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.